0: Hello and welcome to the Flucoma podcast. Today I'm talking with Darlene Castor-Ortiz, who is a composer and also a classical guitarist based at the University of Chicago, where she is currently working on her PhD in composition. So much of Darlene's compositional work uh, looks at the idea of sonification and creating sonic representations of non-musical objects. Her work has been performed and commissioned by many different ensembles such as the Spectral Quartet, the Running Flutes and the Salty Cricket Composers Collective to name but a few. Today, we'll be learning about Darlene's practice and also the progress of her latest project, which makes use of some of the flucoma tools. So Darlene, hello and thank you for talking with me today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, I'm I'm so happy to be here.
0: Quite welcome um so I've read that uh you've been interested in music from an early age uh playing violin playing in a youth mariachi band and then somewhat um classical orchestra setting um so perhaps you could begin by telling us how you got into the musical world and also how you uh transitioned from the classical world to a more noisier setting
1: yeah um I know like uh I have this really vivid memory of a field trip in third grade to go see like this orchestra performing a music teacher at the time was like an oboist with the community orchestra and i don't know how much of it is like me like glorifying or, or like uh you know being having a very romantic ideal of this but i do remember i was like so impressed by this experience and i like very much latched onto the, the violin um my parents at the time Lessons. We also lived in a really small town, so um in Indiana. So things were kind of limited. Uh, and I was pretty much like uh, my only real option was the public school system and sort of the music programs they had. My elementary school at the time didn't have an orchestra program or a really robust music program. I think as most as it got is uh as far as it got was we learned to read music and like play the recorder. Um and so i basically had to wait until middle school they did do a visit in fifth grade and i was able to try the instruments and then I, I remember really being like okay i really like the violin at least compared to like a clarinet or like a flute that i also tried and that summer when i started middle school we moved to texas um which is corpus christi about two hours from the border two or three hours from the border with mexico um, and the middle school I went to there didn't have an orchestra, like a band program, but they did have this like small mariachi band. Um, and so basically I was like, okay, you know, I wanna do this. At least this is one way to get myself to like, in a sort of violin setting. Um, so I got into the class and the teacher was like, oh, do you know how to play violin? And I said, I have no idea. And he basically just like, let me pick a violin and gave me the sheet saying, here are all the fingerings. This is how you play a violin, here you go. And so I kind of learned, um, had to play the violin with all, all some of familiar setting because these are all sort of like folk songs that are very um, common and like the Mexican heritage and culture. So um, at least that way, I, I had a, a sort of somehow some way to grasp onto like learning the violin. Um, my mom worked as a for the school district as like a lunch lady, and so she was actually able to transfer me to the school where she worked, and they had, had an orchestra program there.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: for the next two years, I was um, I was in the in the the orchestra there and had a great time. I had this really cool teacher. He would like he was so he would dress up like in a in a suit for every, every day for class, and he um he was so proper, and it was it was a lot of fun. Um, and I do have kind of this like vague snippet of like um, snippet of a memory of like composing some like violin melodies like in eighth grade, um, but I think that was like maybe like the earliest I ever sort of did. Um, and then for high school, we moved to Utah, and um, the school I was assigned to didn't have an orchestra program. It was very bad luck. Um, <laughs> On my end, but luckily my mom heard. I think it was like a radio um, announcement that there was this um, free charter high school for the performing arts in the in the city, and so she was like, "Okay, you know, if you really want to do this, let's go enroll you." I think I only went to like the other school for like one day, and then the next day I was enrolled at the um, performing arts high school, and so I took all my classes at uh, all my core classes like science and math at um, the high school where we were based. And then um, all my electives were part of this sort of charter performing arts high school. And so I took two years of, high, of a music theory, um, and then they had a composition class that I started taking in 10th grade. And I kind of repeated that class um, all through my senior year. The first year was kind of when we got this like uh, instruction on form and sort of what to do with melody and how to work with harmony. It was really it was taught by the same teacher who taught theory. so. Um, it was very sort of um, interlocked with the things we learned in the theory class. So um, we also did composing in the theory class. Um, And then when you repeated the class, it was kind of more of a free-for-all you know, the class kind of divided into those who had taken it already and those who hadn't. And so we kind of formed our own groups and had some working time in that class. And the teacher would come around and give us feedback and we would give each other feedback. So yeah, I had a good three years of just kind of having this class where I could compose. Um, And I think at least sort of um, caught my attention more than the violin. Um, that teacher also was uh, leading a, a classical guitar ensemble class, and so I really wanted to take another class with him because I had to fill up my electives. And that's kind of when I started moving over to the classical guitar because it was—it's um, just a, an instrument capable of more polyphony, and there's so much more color possibilities with it at the time than with violin. I, th- I thought, even though you know they both have their merits, um, and so. Yeah, I, I kind of had that sort of classical guitar training where important and there's also the, a bit of a noisy element with like some of the rasguedo strums. So I think that kind of got me thinking about noise or about at least um, parameters of music outside of just pitch. And then uh, in my theory class, we started talking about um, serialism and sort of um, set theory and that really piqued my interest in dissonance, which is a very sort of tame version of noise kind of. So I think I always had that like in the background, and and we also took you know like the music appreciation class where we you know we um, were introduced to George Crumb and Penderecki's you know Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, and so yeah, I kind of like the more I got that, a sort of world, I was like oh I really really am enjoying this, this is kind of where I want to go, um, and then it wasn't until um, I got to my undergrad. Um, in my second year that we took um we had to take a music technology class and then a an electronic composition class where i actually um was like exposed to all these tools that i could finally use and i was like oh okay this is like really exciting my vocabulary for what i want to do and that's kind of when i really latched on to sort of um doing more noisier things or being more interested in exploring noisier textures and noisier techniques
0: So it's so you you had to take uh, music technology as part of your course in undergrad. Yeah, that's interesting, because, yeah, where I did my undergrad, it was an option that you could do if you're interested Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it sounds like you were really on that musical path from a very young age. And it sounds like your parents were quite supportive of that that as well. Yeah,
1: Yeah, my mom was incredible. She like she was really she was really on it and she did whatever she could to like
0: really, really support that. Yeah, yeah that's great to hear. Um, so uh, you've written that um, sonification is a uh, big interest in uh, for your compositional work and the idea of uh, musical translations. Um, so the, this is an idea that could be approached many different ways. I'd like to, to hear about how you approach this idea, both um, technically, and aesthetically. So how do you practically approach this notion in your work, but also um, how do you conceptualize these techniques as a composer?
1: Yeah, um, during my undergrad, I was coming out of this very like practical and kind of gritty training of like, okay, this is how you do things. You need to learn how to handle musical objects. And so it wasn't really until um, the first PhD, because I went straight from my bachelor's into into my PhD, that I um, really had to, um do some like self-reflection on myself as an artist and like my artistic practice um we usually the first years have to present on their work to the the current students and so it really forced me to like be like okay what am i what is what am i all about what am i sort of how do i want to sell myself i guess to to um the music department and so um I kind of noticed that there was this thread of extra musical inspiration in a lot of my work. So I was like, okay, that's something I can sort of look deeper into. And as I was was looking into it and sort of um, kind of doing a self analysis on my pieces, I noticed that um, with the, Specific subjects of extra musical inspiration I was working with, there was this really familiar feeling that comes with being fully bilingual and not being able to translate between two languages in like the, a way that is satisfactory. Um there's always this like, I don't know, this extra like knowledge, this extra texture to certain words or certain sayings that don't quite fit in all the way. Um, And so I noticed that that was kind of a driving force in how I approach music. Um, So it was nice to kind of have like, finally have something that could be like, okay, this is kind of what I'm about. And so a lot of the ways that I noticed that I kind of did that um, and continued to do that is um, mostly by just mapping um, things, sort of like elements of the extra musical, subjects that I'm working with onto like their musical equivalents, which of course is like filtered through my own sort of interpretation. Um, some of it is very sort of one-to-one kind of uh, self-explanatory, some of it is more subtle kind of like of course dealing with more interpretation um, but in this mapping I kind of try to create a shared vocabulary or almost like a table of translation between the extra musical and the sort of musical objects that I wanted to work with. So one uh, piece that really comes to mind is, Desmoronamiento, which in Spanish means it's like a crumbling. And um, I mean, I grew up bilingual. And so at home, we just speak Spanish, my parents are from Mexico, and then um, all of education and schooling and then the music world I was sort of engrossed in was all in English. And so these two worlds like sort of explaining things to my mom because I, I to this day I kind of only speak to her in Spanish is like it's so it's so hard for me to find that um, the words in Spanish and then equally like when talking about my home life it's so hard to sometimes find those words in English to sort of describe that and so um, sometimes I'll like hear words in Spanish that I maybe wasn't exposed to and they'll like they'll just sound so rich to me because they're you know um they're in a new sort of context and this word was one of those and so i thought okay like as as soon as i heard it it was like i feel like i hear like crumbling concrete and like all this like dusty granular stuff um and so that was just like a more um sort of subtle interpretive interpret uh, like interpretation um sort of through my ears of what that was like so i just basically deconstructed what goes into creating a flute sound with air noises um and sort of the difference between uh, the sort of like spectrum between the noisiness of the air pushing through, resulting into the final sort of pitch state and everything in between. Um, I have another piece that's more direct in that that goal called all at once, which is actually for a flute choir for 12 flutes is amazing. Sounds like a big organ. Um, And I based that on this kind of, um, it was, I wanted to like do like a minimalism study, I guess. This was like back in in like my junior year of undergrad. And um, I wanted to kind of do minimalism, but kind of do it in a way that was interesting to me. And so I thought, you know, it would the sort of slower changing texture and sort of nature of minimalism would um, be a great medium to translate the experience of seeing a painting Um, because it's all type kind of there, and then you can sort of zoom into different sections. And so I had the orchestra choir basically playing this huge block of texture, and then I would kind of pull um, lines out of it. And so that was a very um, kind of one-to-one, easier sort of translation or mapping. Um, uh, I also have a wind quintet that actually hasn't been performed to this day, but it's it's called lienzos, which is like a means canvas in Spanish and each movement was based on a painting or a sculpture and so um i mapped a lot of um density like the sort of dense uh one is a sculpture that's basically just like electric tape that's kind of like um almost mimicking these like three-dimensional ink splatters and so there are these nodes of like density and then these kind of things that come out like spider webs and so i took um i kind of just kind of flattened that through time where I have these like dense blocks and then I have these sort of wispier things coming out of those blocks. So that of course was also uh, a more one-to-one um, sort of mapping. Um, another it's like for a snare drum trio, um, palomitas, which means um, actually it's a word that has three meanings. It means doves, it means firecrackers, and it means popcorn. And so I was really leaning into like the sound worlds of all of those words um uh in spanish so like soft rustling of dove wings and like the popping of popcorn the dry sort of popping of popcorn and then this like louder firecracker um uh popping with with the snare drums and then one of the more um uh recent pieces that i did was blend for string quartet and percussion and this was definitely much more of a um transliteration I guess I would say. I had, um, I was more familiar with, um, you know, extended techniques and um, ways of orchestrating all of these noisy things I wanted to have in my music and so, um, you know, what we would call like temporal modulation now I just basically uh, thought of it as of the string quartet and the percussion as um, these two like speakers of a late of their own language and then they would speak each other's la- language with like an accent so like the 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 string quartet would try to sound like the like the percussion i had the percussion tried to sound like the strings and so that was i think um one of the one of the kind of like like the a meeting point of like all that i had kind of learned and actually using um research i had done and extended techniques as opposed to just kind of like it being this more interpretive sort of subtle um, mapping.
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. A lot of what you're saying is resonating with me personally as well because I, um, my parents are English, but I grew up in France, so I'm bilingual, and I've certainly experienced the the those kind of things that you're talking about. Um, I'm I'm interested to know if um, if 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 those kinds of ideas are part of the creative process um uh well so obviously they're part of the creative process but um is that something that you're you want your audience to be very aware of is it something that just the piece emerges from it and then you present the piece to the audience or are you going to make the audience very aware of of how this piece came into into being
1: yeah i like making the audience aware just because it gives them something to hang on to and um at first i was very sort of stringent on like, no, this piece has to exist outside of its explanation. Um, and to, and I think that has, you know, some merit to a certain extent for some people. But I think I really enjoy, you know, giving really some submer- like uh, immersing people in this sort of world and where I'm coming from. And, you know, at the end of the day, music is just how we analyze our experiences and our tastes. And, you know, why not give them something to su- supplement, you know, how you how you work and what you want that will come to be.
0: yeah Yeah. okay um so you mentioned some of some of your pieces there so um it is interesting to note that uh, a lot of your work is written for instrumentalists um with uh live processing sometimes um so i'm curious to hear about your approach um for working with um and writing for other musicians um and also perhaps what your relationship with the score is and 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 how musicians enter into this idea of executing your, your musical translations?
1: Yeah, I think um, I have a lot of reverence for instrumentalists. Um, they are like specialists on a level that I could never sort of achieve to be on. And so I, I definitely um, take their input and um, their ability to interpret my music very sort of seriously um and i take um all that into consideration there's been times when i have something intended and um they don't exactly interpret it in the way that i was imagining but they it still sounds like what i want because maybe they've been informed by the rest of my piece or maybe it's just you know um something they suggest but yeah i'm really open to letting the um instrumentalists um, you know guide the work um there have been times where i do that more literally by you know having like the box notation and having you know timings of like do this here do this there and then in workshops we kind of um finesse that sound um but yeah um to a certain extent i'm like uh i would say like 70% of my process is like once the piece leaves me it's kind of not mine anymore um i can obviously give some input and give some direction but um at the end of the day it's them on stage you know um I've kind of done my work. And so I think, um, you know, they're as much, I I welcome them into the sort of like, uh, into the creation process after the piece has been composed because there is a certain amount of creation that does happen when you're working with them to actually, you know, perform it on stage.
0: Mm. Yeah, Yeah. well, um, yeah, I I think a really good um, way to to get into that even more is to, so to talk about um, this latest project that you've, um, that you were telling me about, um, which sounds really fascinating um, and also happens to use some of the flucoma tools. Um, so yeah, maybe to sort of um, preface um, all that you could, perhaps you could uh, tell us about the project, um, what are your intentions? What's the context of its creation and what we'll be seeing and hearing in performance?
1: Yeah, um, so I think, um... I've always just loved the, the pieces about literal sort of shadows and the, the uh, shadow of a performer um, and I've always loved sort of silhouette art and um, shadow paper art and shadow films um, because it's just it's so intriguing to see this outline of something happening but there's all there are all these details that you don't know about you know what the person what the what what the things that are moving actually look like or what they're sort of um, the extent of which the actions that are happening, like, um, I know that's a, a common sort of uh, uh, technique in film, right, when you don't want to show anything too gory, you kind of go onto the wall where you see the shadows, or so it's like, um, it almost makes it more horrific because you're than imagining like the worst possible thing happening to these like silhouettes. Um, so yeah, there's like this really um, strange imbalance of information, I guess that I'm really drawn to um, about shadows. Um, and this air of mystery there and I um, I wanted to find some way to sort of to bring that to my artistic practice um, and one way that I guess or the main way that I'm formulating that in this um, project is in that essentially I'm trying to create a touchless interface that takes um, a performer's shadow as input data so I'll have a sort of a, a muslin screen and it'll be embedded with photo transistors which if you cover them or um, uncover them they're exposed to light and that is taken as analog data um and then yeah basically it's it'll be there um almost like an empty canvas for the performer to to have their shadow projected on and then the motion that they um create and the shadows they create as they're moving um, while playing their instrument uh will then sort of generate the data that will then be um taken and mapped onto um, parameters for uh, like granular, what I'm doing now is is with granular synthesis and delays for parameters of that. um, And sort of processing their actual live sound, the live sound of the motions they are making that then go into, you know, so it's like this feedback kind of loop. Um, They'll, they'll be I'm imagining them being closely mic'd. And so only I guess the audience can't hear much of their actual acoustic sound. They'll just be seeing the motions and then they'll be, I'm doing this because I'm imagining it as a violin right now because I you know play play the violin for a little bit, um, but they'll they'll see this motion and they'll hear, um, but they'll hear the process sound. So there's also a disconnect there between what they imagine like that motion should sound like and then it comes out as something separate. Um, so yeah, so there'll also be this kind of like, Air of mystery there, where you see this thing happening if you're familiar with the instrument, but that the actual sonic output is the strange sort of like thing that maybe you're not expecting.
0: Mm. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. It sounds like also it could be extending some of those ideas around translation, that kind of imbalance of information that you're talking about. Yeah, you no, know, um, yeah. So I'm I'm really um, interested to to hear about. Um, how you've how you've been developing some of the techniques in this so um one thing that i'd like so you're using uh, a regressor so uh, the mlp uh, regressor i'm i'm imagining um so there are several things in that that i'd um be interested in hearing so uh, first of all for for training the the regressor and um so the different positions of shadows um which is why i was um Thinking about working with the instrumentalist earlier, um, how, how how have you gone about training the regressor? Have you been working with the person that's going to be performing the piece, um, or have you been standing yourself in front? Um, have you? And also, I, I assume that this Muslin screen um, is going to be quite a big, kind of difficult interface to to move around and stuff. Have, have you got that set up um, in the studio? Are you working with that? How, how's how's that process been happening?
1: Yeah, I actually I had this idea at the kind of bef- a little bit before the pandemic, so I was limited in, in studio space so I didn't really get a chance to actually get it working up and working until fairly recently. Um, but yeah I I'm, I'm sort of. Um, it's not quite uh, at least for this first iteration the um, the photo transistors aren't quite spread out and like. They're kind of contained to the performers outline and so as they kind of move within and without of that space, that is then kind of what i'm working with now, at least to keep it manageable, I think. um, I think definitely the natural sort of progress of this is to extend it to like so that the whole screen is embedded with them, so we have this very sort of. um, Much more space to work with But for right now it's definitely limited to. um, Just the kind of around the outline of 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 a person and it's been mostly just me um because it's been hard to get someone um to it it takes a lot of sort of time to do this and so it's basically just been me with like a pedal trying to like you know um i think there's like a you you just send a bang object like to to the aggressor and it like saves the setting um that you want with the laptop um up there so yeah it's been it's been a little bit it's kind of like chasing your own tail i guess because you you can't move but then you also have to like adjust the parameters and things so yeah um but i think that's kind of just the 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 a sort of temporary stage because just because it takes so much time to to work with someone else um eventually i do once i get a handle of like okay these are the sort of the parameters that i want to set with the shadow um i'll then obviously ask someone to sort of come in and um be the actual model for that and then i'll be at the helm sort of controlling it a bit more um but yeah yeah right now it's mostly just been me yeah basically chasing my own tail
0: (laughs) yeah and and so how do you um how does the process of of so you say that it's uh, controlling a, mainly a granulator patch. Is that correct?
1: A granulator patch and a delay. Yeah.
0: Right. Okay. And so, um, are you mapping all of the parameters in those patches? Uh, and and how how do you how do you go about the training process? Do you do you set up um, a parameter space that uh, that is interesting for you, and then map it uh, perhaps to an extreme position, and then do another, and then to see those intermediate spaces or do you tend to do lots and lots of data because um, there's lots of different approaches to it.
1: Yeah, I think I definitely start with the sound. So I think about what gesture is necessary for a sound that I'm interested in. And so like if I want to do some like um, sort of rolling the bow back and forth in this position, then I'll kind of see. Um, first, I'll, I'll set the parameters of the patch. Of the granular and the delay patch to a sound that i want and then um or at least the sort of processing that i want on that sound and then i'll go and see what the actual uh, analog data is of that sort of position um and then you know set it in place as um as like a boundary of like okay when i'm here i want it to sound like this and then maybe when i move away from it i want it to be um say like i want the density to be maximum here and then when i'm here i want it to be a little bit less for the granular um, patch, um, I'll set those two and then everything in between. I'm um, relying on the regressor to sort of map um, that. Maybe I'll do something um, if that doesn't work and I'm having a lot of like stuff in between that I don't like the sound of. Maybe I'll sort of stop halfway and then go like that and sort of give it more uh, fidelity and more definition. But yeah, essentially it's just starting with sound, sort of like stop motioning myself. different positions of like what goes into making that sound and then setting the parameters and then finally having those be kind of my boundaries
0: yeah yeah Yeah, that's really interesting and uh, yeah something a term that was um i think it's rebecca feebrink at the last flucoma plenary said talking about working with aggressors and stuff and, and how small data is beautiful and small collections of data can allow us to explore those spaces between those extremes and stuff and yeah it's it's a really yeah. stimulating way of working
1: yeah and i definitely um i think that uh really um complements like uh, my approach to working with instrumentalists too because i'll give them instructions and i'll have this general idea of what i want but then sort of the more in between things as long as they kind of follow a general just dis- like description of what i want that's um the sort of spontaneity of it and the creativity of their improvisation is more important to me than these exact sort of rhythms and and sounds so I think this is like the perfect like vehicle for um, a lot of what I already like doing with instrumentalists.
0: Yeah, yeah I I, I was interested that you used the term feedback loop earlier um, because I don't know if you saw one of the pieces um, uh that was at the second flucoma concert um by alice eldridge and chris kafer uh was so it was using their their um their feedback cello system um and they also used the regressor um to to augment this this system so you've got the sound coming out of the the cello uh which is um going through the regressor which is um um which is being mapped to some processing, which is affecting the cello, which is going back into the cello and and exciting some of the chords and stuff, and um, and yeah, so they they kind of seemed to to consider the the aggressor as this kind of third agent that entered into this um, into this loop with them, and that so they've got this loop that they're they're both exciting at different parts and. and 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 kind of imparting energy into that and that the regressor really was its own agent that was also doing that i was wondering if if that had any resonances with you how you how, how you conceptualize this regressor in in this system that you've created
1: yeah it definitely feels like um be, just because of the nature of how i approach working with instrumentalists and like them these sort of extremes of, of instructions and then they can do like you know smaller individual things in between, it does feel like the regressor is another instrumentalist that I'm working with. Um, uh, and they kind of sort of feed into each other. Um, and it's almost like a duet, I guess they're playing um, with each other. So yeah, I definitely see the regressor as another sort of instrumentalist that um, perhaps I have more control over because I'm, you know, I can set, uh, I can define it a bit more. and um, And I can sort of control its Feedback maybe in a way that I wouldn't with an instrumentalist. Or in a way maybe I would be intimidated to with an instrumentalist. Um, but yeah, yeah, I definitely think it's 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 definitely a third agent, both of uh myself, I think, because I'm directly putting a lot of my own aesthetic, uh, my sort of auditory aesthetic into it, and also of um the performer because they are essentially sort of working within the 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 sort of boundaries that the regressor allows them to, in a way.
0: Yeah, well, well, I was going to ask, because so that's how you conceptualize uh, of the regressor existing this thing. Um, But also, so from the perspective of the instrumentalist, um, you have to consider that, you know, as well as playing the notes that they've been asked to play on their instrument. They're also now having to deal with this, this whole con- this whole other control parameter. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know uh, to what extent the movements are going to be scripted and, and perhaps worked into a score. Um, are you are you asking uh, the, instrumental if the instrumentalist very precisely? Um, to to move to certain positions? Um, is this all happening despite them? Um, is it another instrument that they're asked to play simultaneously, or are you proposing this as an extension to their instrument?
1: Yeah, this is definitely an extension of their instrument. I kind of um am sort of positing this as a meta instrument um in a way because they're playing it both by feeding it um, sort of audio data by physically, you know, um, performing or playing their instrument, but they're also feeding it shadow data, position data. Um, So, you know, they're they're essentially sort of dealing with these two things. And I I guess I'm, I'm kind of hoping that by having their shadow there as this sort of like haptic feedback, visual haptic feedback, that will um, sort of inspire them maybe to move or to sort of think about their instrument in a different way. Um, It's actually something I'm really worried about because it might sort of encourage them to perform in a way that might be, you know, unnatural, right? Have your wrist up with the bow like this to create different things, Um, but yeah, yeah. So this is definitely something that they are very much controlling, um, at least within the extent of the boundaries that I set for them. Um, I'm definitely hoping to, to have, you know, when they play sound, it's what, only the sound that they're playing and they're sort of controlling the onset of when this processing starts. Um, I want to notate um, the starts and ends of things and maybe a little bit of timing in between them. Um, but yeah, but I definitely uh, I'm, I'm sort of encouraging them to explore um different physicalities maybe more physicalities than i am actual sound like i I kind of i do have a set sort of sound vocabulary that i want so i am notating that and giving instructions for that but um i think i definitely want the sort of movements within that um outside of maybe moving their head or maybe moving their body or leaning or moving their elbows in different ways that i definitely want to be sort of all up to them and for them to sort of use that as a chance to explore um you know how you know sound instead of just you know using the bow i guess I, i'm imagining them kind of not thinking about the sort of sound as much and we're thinking about the, their physicality you know once they're kind of set mm-hmm. into a sound they can kind of just rest there and think about other things um sorry i'm very yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah yeah i definitely want it to be something that they they do have some control over at least when it comes to movement. Um, but I think it would be very dishonest to say that I'm not controlling l- basically everything else outside of that, yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, an- another idea that uh, you mentioned um, talking before um, that you were wanting to explore with this piece um, was that of performer visibility and constraint on stage, um, which is something I find really interesting. I'm, I must say I've not, ha- had much chance to kind of participate in any kind of shadow theatre kind of things. But um, it's a really interesting idea. I was wondering if you could unpack that.
1: Um, yeah, I think um, the first thing that came to mind was um, like the the orchestra editions where they have you perform behind a screen. Um, I think that was one big thing that kind of, um, I don't know if it informed it, but I definitely, I um, I think it definitely just because I, you know, grew up hearing about this um and it's like a phenomenon we have um for a very, you know, um unfair reason but we you know have it. Um I think that's something that um really interested me. Um I don't think I, I directly want to like a, like a sort of statement on it because I that's not really what I'm uh, you know, actively doing but um I am definitely aware that that connotation is there because it's just I mean it's literally an instrumentalist behind the screen. Um I also think there's this um, sort of culture with stage performance where like, uh, you know, with orchestras, uh, everyone is dressed the same. You have um, everyone in either tuxedos or all, you know, concert black. And then um, uh, you have, you know, with maybe smaller chamber ensembles, you either have a coordinating color or everyone's wearing all black. And so they kind of disappear into the screen, into, into the this, this sort of background and they kind of just become vessels for music. Um, there's a lot of writing about, um, I forget her name, but she's a pianist and she um, she wears sort of shorter skirts on stage, so she's showing her legs, you know, she's more, maybe more comfortable that way. And people are like, oh, that distracts from the music. So there's always this like, um, yeah, I guess it's also maybe the idea uh, coming out of just like being a woman and being subjected to the male gaze, right, you're always being watched, you're always subjected to you know having to be aware of yourself and 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 um i think a lot of that also extends to stage work um and so i think yeah just like having the performer both disappear but be visible and and be um you know there to like impart the experience onto the audience i think is something that's like this really really interesting tension to play with mm-hmm. um, yeah, because you want to be there. Uh, I mean, with, I guess maybe the exception of like soloists or like opera sort of stars where they want, you want them to stand out. But for the most part, I at least I imagine, and I've experienced that like performers are sort of um, expected to be like expected to sort of like disengage from their appearance and be all about sort of projecting sound out into the audience.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a really fascinating idea to explore i think and so yeah so i've i've never um really been in a orchestral context so i've i've this is the first time i've heard about this practice of so when you go to an audition they it, it they can put you behind a screen so what um, yeah, yeah what, what's happening why do they yeah. do that
1: <laughs> so it was for a time to avoid uh, gender discrimination
0: right. um
1: and i think i heard rumor I, um, rumors of like going to the extent of even having to put carpet down so that the jury wouldn't hear high heels um, mm-hmm. clicking on on the yeah. So it's I think this um, I think it was like an initiative brought on to um, you know even out the sort of like uh, gender disparity of um, orchestras. You know, mostly favoring uh, male or cis cis white male um, sort of performers.
0: Oh, great. Now it sounds like it's gonna be a really, really interesting piece. And do, do you, um, do you already have a performer in mind? Or?
1: Um, yeah, I haven't formally asked. But yeah, I, I think I'm between either a violist or a flutist, just because they are full. Cool and a lot mm-hmm. of their sort of motion is concentrated to this upper sort of half. And so it's yeah. a lot more contained. Um, I think it'd be harder to do with a seated instrumental. I guess it could be done, but it just, um, I think, at least for right now, you know, this sort of first iteration, first run, I definitely see it for uh, a flutist or violist. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, please, if 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 you're willing to to share the code once the project's going, then please share that on the forum. I'm sure it'd be really interesting for people to see.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: Um, another piece of work that I wanted to talk with you about that we haven't really mentioned as of yet um, is the research that you did around historical music notation um so i was wondering if you could talk a little about um what it was that you did and if perhaps maybe some of this that work may have informed some of your creative practice
1: yeah um i think uh a lot of my interest in historical notation stems from just my love of calligraphy um it's kind of one of like the oldest hobbies i have next to or one of the oldest interests i have next to like music um, so I think a lot of what initially drew me to it was just the actual, you know, craft of the the lettering and the sort of inking and the the working on parchment and everything. Um, but the more I sort of uh, looked into it and um, thought about it, at least from a composition point of view, I thought, oh, you know, these are essentially just, um, I mean, it's interesting to see from an evolutionary point, you know, how we sort of refined notation and create a, a, a way to Uh, communicate better with performers um, in the sort of more detached setting that we have now of stage and composer performer. Um, But I think there's also this sort of um, interesting, um, I guess, maybe mindset you have when you're working with different notation systems. Um, In my undergrad, I did this, um, this project sort of centered around completing a missing voice of a um, of a, of a madrigal by composing it um, only in the notation of the time, which was white menstrual notation. Um, so it's not too different from our modern notation. There's just no real dynamics, um, and there are no bar lines. And so um, you kind of have this like, uh, and, and um, we don't have it didn't have the sort of conventional like, uh, you know, uh, editing that makes notation a bit easier where we sort of show the downbeat and like tie things over so that counting is easier. Um, it doesn't have that. So you're able to see patterns a lot um, clearer. You're able to um, map out um, parallelism and, and um, a lot of sort of uh, tools of counterpoint which more visually um, apparent And there. And so, um, yeah, I just basically submerged myself in Renaissance theory and sort of just only working with um, composing by um, well, analyzing the piece in this original notation and then composing through its sort of original notation. And that was sort of a, a very like a transformative experience, I guess you could say, because it, it made me realize that how important tools are to composers in crafting our mindset. And like what we might miss if we're working in a specific notation system, as opposed to another and what um, things might uh, be easier to do in certain systems than others. And so I think that um, really um, kind of opened my eyes to exploring um, other ways of notating things. I mean, I think this is something that all composers sort of contend with, right? Like, how do we work within this um, system that everyone sort of grew up uh, every everyone, by everyone, I mean all the musicians we work with sort of grew up using, uh, and um, but how do we sort of try these new things that maybe aren't, um, maybe the system doesn't lend itself well to explaining or to showing um, on a visual scale. And so, yeah, I think that just like led me down this rabbit hole of like, how can I um, show things in different ways and actually that's part of the reason why my uh, my wind quintet wasn't performed because it was this huge experiment in like writing things in um different kind of notation styles and so i actually the wind quintet i was assigned to perform it they said they didn't they it, i should rewrite it into an easier sort of way to read um because that was which i mean is fair i was i was a I, I i a lot of things would have been a lot of things were just me wanting to be artistic. And that could have been easily rewritten, um, but some of the things were worthy of of being in the um, in the sort of more pictorial way that I depicted it. Um, but yeah, it just got me thinking about just communication and and how how that, how that shapes how I approach composing from the get go.
0: Mm. Yeah, know it's a shame that it didn't get played for that for that reason. Because yeah, no, and again, so coming back to the this idea of Translations and how different systems of communication may may not quite uh, get certain certain aspects across that others can. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's a really really interesting approach. Um, so finally, um, I'd love to hear. Um, Sort of just about uh, uh, about the future of your work so um obviously you're using quite high level um, machine learning techniques for, for for this for this piece um is this uh, workflow that you've been finding particularly stimulating um do you do you see any of the other um, workflows uh, proposed by the flu uh, the flucoma toolkit um as being something that you'd be you'd like to um, develop in some of your future work?
1: Definitely. yeah. I think um, the thing that's most exciting to me is that there is uh, just this such flexibility in creating interactive environments for people to work within. And so um, one sort of thing that I'm leaning more towards now that I'm getting a little bit more comfortable with at least two flacoma haptics so far, um, the regressor and the classifier. is sort of interactive installations um, for people to sort of work through and and, and experience. Um, I know uh, I, I do a lot of sewing and knitting and cross-stitch and so I'm really interested in how I can bring textiles into that sort of world and uh, use textile to create tactile sort of interfaces for people as both um, a, a sort of like um, sensory thing through touch and through sight, right? Working with these um, like, like I really want to create this like cross stitch drum set because of the hoops that you can put through um, that mm-hmm. you put on to the cross stitch. And so I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, and of course that like, you know, is perfect for like, again, a regressor. Um, so yeah, yeah regressor is one thing that's really um, interesting to me. I also have another sort of like more personal project um, using the classifier. I want to, my cat's really vocal, her name's Spunky, and I really <laughs> want to. Um, we've taught her to, um, when she's hungry to like, say to meow as meh. and it's this really interesting meow that she just did out of nowhere. And we've tried of trying to train her through that. And so I really want to create this like automatic feeder that will respond to her going, me. Mm-hmm. um, and then perhaps a little bit more crazily. I want to almost create like a, like maybe like a little translator for her, like, um, for her meows with the classifier. So I think like, um, uh you know both like personal fun wacky things and 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 more sort of serious um artistic pieces
0: yeah yeah well showing the scope of what some of these things can do yeah and uh, <laughs> and yeah just a, a shout out to um probably no Frida Abtan um who was actually on the first episode of uh the the podcast who's who, who's done some work uh, not with using flukam tools but who's done some work with them um, sort of reactive textiles and building mm-hmm. installations where I think it was a very big um kind of tapestry sheet um that people could touch and yeah that, that's a really interesting piece as well yeah. great well thank you so much darling that was um really really interesting um I'm really looking forward to seeing how the piece is going to develop and uh yeah if you're if you're okay to, to to share code and stuff then i'm sure people will be really interested to see how that's progressing on the forums um so all that's left to say thank you very much and uh i shall speak to you again soon
1: yeah thank you it was a pleasure i'm um, getting being able to talk to you about all this thing all these things and um yeah thank you for having me
0: you're quite welcome you. Bye bye
1: okay bye